0: Alfred Noble was an industrialist in the 1800s. In the middle 1800s, he developed a, a product. That once he learned to ship it safely, uh, made his company very successful and made him a wealthy man. His product was dynamite. And he um, went on to corner the market, not only on explosives used in construction, but also explosives used in warfare. As company, company became the primary supplier of um, munitions, uh, landmines, uh, mines used in the ocean, and um, uh, explosives and warfare in general revolutionized both construction and warfare, uh, he had the unusual experience one morning. Uh, he was living in Paris. He was a, He was Swedish, but he was living in Paris. And he uh, woke up and opened the morning newspaper and read his own obituary. His brother Ludwig had died, and the paper mistakenly ran an obituary for Alfred. And they had titled his obituary "The Merchant of Death is Dead." And that had an impact on Alfred Nobel. And later on in life, he went on to establish the Nobel Prizes. One of the premier of the Nobel Prizes, one of the primary Nobel Prizes, is the Peace Prize. And today when we think of the name Nobel, we're much more likely to think of peace than we are of war. We are all approaching life and we will all leave behind a legacy. We will all have a statement or two. The fact of the matter is, someday you're going to be um, a name filling a slot on somebody's genealogy chart. And they're going to know one or two things about you. Uh, you think about your parents, you know a lot about them, your grandparents, you may know quite a bit about them. Your great-grandparents, well, maybe not very much. Your great-great-grandparents, if you have one or two stories about them, that's that's about it. And someday, you're going to be somebody's great-great-grandparent, and they're going to know one or two things about you, and what are those one or two things going to be? There are two men in the Bible who had the name Saul. They had contrasting experiences in life in many ways. The One started out as an extraordinary, outstanding young man, went on to fail in some pretty outstanding ways. The other started out on the wrong track and wound up turning around becoming an outstanding man for God. They both made statements about their lives toward the end of their lives. King Saul in the Old Testament, when David was fleeing from him and he was pursuing David, and and David had the chance to take his life, and he didn't. And then he called Saul and, and, and asked him, why are you pursuing me? Like, what, why are you coming after me? I, I mean, I, I could have killed you and I, I didn't. And, and I don't have anything against him, I mean, I'm not, not out to take your life. And in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 21, this is Saul's statement. That's kind of his epitaph, kind of his statement about his life. It says, then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm because my soul was precious in thine eyes these days. Here's his statement about his life. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. What a, a sad statement on a life gone wrong. Now well, we come to our text for the morning, or afternoon I guess it is now, of 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul makes a completely different statement about his life Right at the end of his life, nearing the end of his life, he makes this well known statement I've fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. We like to look at each of these in sequence. First of all, the Apostle Paul is saying, I have fought a good fight. We have to recognize that we are in a spiritual battle, we are engaged in the great contest of the ages. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You see, when we look at the troubled times we live in, and we look at the homosexual community, we look at ISIS, uh, we look at all the things that are going on in our world today, those people are not the enemy. Uh, it, it, someone has said if your enemy has a driver's license you've got the wrong enemy like we're fighting a spiritual battle we're struggling against spiritual forces and the contest is being fought for the hearts and souls of humanity and we are engaged in a struggle with the evil one for, for the allegiance of humanity which, and that allegiance will determine the eternal destiny of every person that you and I meet on the street, and everyone that we uh, know, our neighbors, our friends, all of those people are, are are the battlefield. That's what's being fought for. The devil would like to keep you on the sidelines, because he probably looks at you and I, and he looks at most of us, and says, "You know, I'm probably not a, I'm not probably going to get that person to switch sides." So he looks at you and I, and he says, that, that person probably isn't going to deny Christ and turn away from the faith and, and just become an absolute heathen and an atheist and, and, and draw people away from Christ. So, what are my other options? And I think one of the primary options that Satan has with us, one of the tools he uses with us, is he neutralizes us. He gets us so distracted with things that we withdraw from the battle that's being fought for the hearts and souls of humanity if he can get us so busy with ministry even that we're just so busy administrating all the programs of the church and all the things that need to be done and settling all the arguments and dealing with all the stuff that's going on and, 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 and we, don't, we don't engage in the spiritual battle that's going on then he's taken us off the field he's taken us out of the battle if, if he can get us so distracted with the pursuit of wealth or, or other pursuits in life that we don't engage in the spiritual battle, he has he has neutralized one of, of the soldiers of the cross. He's neutralized us from being engaged in, in what's really happening in our world. Or he can blind our eyes to what's happening and we can begin to go through life in kind of a casual, uh, unconcerned way, just living life one day after another and... I, I'm afraid that in, in too many of the lives of our people, we, we grow up and we go to school and we go to high school we graduate from high school. The Mennonite businessman down the street offers us a job. We go to work for him and then we get married and then we buy a house and we have a 35-year mortgage and then when that's paid off, we're grandparents and then we die. And, and it's like, what happened? And life goes by so quickly and, and, and before you know it. It's, you're at the end, or you're near the end. And, and today, we are building, the, day by day, the things that are going to become our legacy, the things that are going to become the significant things of our life, the significant things in life don't happen, generally, in a flash, in a moment of time. They happen as a result of daily focusing on a larger goal, Daily focusing on moving towards something major that we're going to accomplish in this stage of our lives, and we work toward what God is calling us to do and answering the call of Christ and then working toward the vision that God has for the world. I believe that we were born uh, with a, a desire to live outside of the ordinary. We have kind of a natural um, uh, pull toward adventure we seek adventure in life someone has said I just heard the other day someone say in our time people have so many things that they use to keep themselves from being bored and they just you know they, there's so much uh, information and so much so many gadgets we have that we're we're just never without something to do and, and, and but this person was saying boredom is the gateway to imagination and if you're never bored, you never dream. And sometimes we need to sit in in solitude with the Lord and just seek his vision for our lives. And and think because God's vision is is huge. It's way beyond what our vision is. And and I this is my this is my theory. And you guys you can tell me if I'm wrong. But my theory is if your default setting is when God opens a door for you and gives you an opportunity, your default answer is yes. You are going to get to do some pretty amazing things in, uh, in life. And uh, because God will give you opportunities uh, beyond your imagination, beyond what you think you would ever be able to do. If, when I was 20 years old, if you would have told me what God has given me the opportunity to do in my life, I would have laughed at you. And uh, if we said that's never. Um, but God does some amazing things with people who are willing. God uses the willing and then he qualifies them to do the things that he calls them to do. We have many people as someone mentioned the other day, who are seeking for adventure in many different ways. So we have people that strap a piece of board on their feet and throw themselves off a snow-covered cliff and, and you know, halfway down it's like, I could die. And then, and then they get to the bottom, oh, that was great, and uh, let's do it again. And they go back up, and, and then, well, that cliff is, that hill isn't big enough, and then you need a big one because what really, what really satisfies any extreme sports is you have to think, I could die. You have to think, this is really dangerous. And, or Otherwise, there's no thrill, right? And so, you know, like the guy doesn't ski on the bunny slope for all of his life. Like eventually, you have to have bigger and bigger, because it's that fright, that just, that moment of terror, that I'm almost out of control here. I, like, if this gets any more difficult, I'm going to, you know, I, I could, this could really be painful. And, and people do bull riding and all kinds of things. And, and for the thrill, But what I would suggest to you is that that is pseudo-adventure. It's a fake adventure. And it produces a fake thrill. Because it doesn't really have any eternal significance. And I would suggest to you that true adventure is found in doing the things that have real significance for eternity. So if you want to experience true adventure, engage in the true battle. But why is it that we look for adventure, we terrify ourselves on the ski slope or wherever else it may be, and yet when we come down to doing ministry and you talk to somebody about, like, would you go with me to the jail? Uh, no, I'm a little too scared to do that. I, I don't. Uh, that's a little too scary. I, I don't do that. How about, uh, how about we go, uh, you know, do this, this or that? Well, or would you teach vacation Bible school? Oh no, I, I couldn't do that. I just, I, I'd be scared to. You know, you get those a whole bunch of children in a room, and I'm supposed to keep order. Like, I, that's terrifying. I can't do that. Why does why do we use fear as an excuse when it comes to ministry? But we don't look at skiing and say, well, you want me to get, go off at of that? I can't do that. I mean, I, that could hurt." And I don't. You know, I, no. We it, we pursue adventure. But true adventure is found when we get involved in the battle that has real significance. And I think that our young people are looking for adventure. And I believe that if we offer adventure in the true battle, our young people will experience the thrill of watching God do something and they got to be there. There's nothing that's more exciting than that. And you know what I've found many times? that when I'm about to go into ministry, there is that moment of panic. Why did I say I would do this? And then, when it's done, it's like, that was so good. Uh, I, I would do it again. And it's the same thing as skiing, right? It's the same cycle, but it has real significance for the kingdom. So I, I just encourage you, as you get involved in ministry, take some of your young people with you. Give them an exposure to the real thrill of watching God do things. Because God does amazing things. My uh, brother-in-law went to Israel about two years ago. And as uh, they were doing their tour, their guide was a, a, Jewish, uh, a Jewish guide. And this, this guide was a, a rather influential person in Israel. He knew members of the... Uh, of the Knesset and and he was a rather significant person in in Israel. And um, so they were on the tour with him and and he he understood the story of Jesus and and took them to all these sites and talked about the Lord Jesus and those kinds of things but but not as a savior. Just as kind of uh, a Jewish rabbi. Um, At the end of their tour they went to Jerusalem and the um, The guide told them, uh, now we're going to have a a dinner this evening, and my wife is going to be at the dinner. He said, I want you to know one thing about my wife. We just found out last week that she has uh, cancer. And uh, so it's kind of a tough time for us. And I just want you to know that uh, about her before you meet her at the dinner. So they're going to the dinner, and one of the men in their group really felt like the Lord was saying to him, when you meet the guide's wife, I want you to tell her that Jesus is your healer. So okay, and they went to the dinner, and uh, in the course of the dinner, somewhere in that evening, the uh, guide's wife—he's he, he was thinking about this, and he's thinking about—and he, he got to thinking, you know, I don't know if I can say that to her. Like they're a Jewish couple, and I don't want to be offensive, and I don't—and I just don't know if I can say that. And in the course of that evening, the guide's wife came up to him and she, they were talking and she said, Did you have something you wanted to say to me? And he said, uh, No, I don't. And she said, Okay, I thought maybe you did. No, he said, I, I don't. Well, later that evening, he was really convicted and he started telling some of the other men, I, I really, I really, I really failed there. Like, God told me to say that to her and, and I, I lost my courage. And they told him, you need to tell her. If God told you that, you need to say that to her. So the next night they were having another dinner. So he said, okay, tonight I'm going to tell her. And after the dinner, she came up to him and she said, last night I asked you if you had something to say to me. And you said no, but you did have something to say to me, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. And uh, he told her, Jesus is your healer. And that led into a conversation where that woman gave her heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, accepted the Lord Jesus. I don't know what Jesus did about her cancer, but I know that he healed her in a way that's far more significant than whether he healed her physically from her cancer. And to be the person who gets to be there and say, Jesus is your healer, that's amazing. Uh, I was in uh, India last year we were uh, uh, visiting savings groups during the day. In the evening, we were doing gospel meetings. And uh, oh the schedule in India is uh, phenomenal. That well, things don't start till almost lunchtime, and then they don't quit till midnight. So church starts at ten or ten thirty, and then uh, you get up to preach at about eleven thirty, and uh, things are done by twelve thirty, and then you have, then you eat your biggest meal of the day, and then you then you go home and go to bed. Uh, early in the morning and uh, the next day you do the same thing but we we went to this one village where people were working in the stone quarries and so we were doing the service in the evening we went to the service our coordinator told me now you have to be prepared here like you're going to preach here this evening but uh, he said you have to realize this community is in a a radical Hindu community and so our church services are always kind of a little bit tentative because we don't know if the Hindu people are going to come and keep us from having the service or sometimes they come into the service during the service and they beat people up and, and so just be aware of that um, you know so if you're preaching and a bunch of people come in and start beating people up well we'll just I mean you know it could happen so just be prepared uh, well that's a, that's a little intimidating <laughs> and, and but we got the service nothing happened and there were about ten people who responded to Christ and who received Christ in that, in that service. Now, there's an adventure. Uh, there's something that has real significance for the kingdom. Um, sometimes we get, too, we get too scared. You know, um, uh, Gilbert was talking about the children of Israel and the spies. And they're their excuse was for not going into the promised land was, we're afraid. Uh, really, when it came down to it, it turned it, it became unbelief. Because they had the promises of God, they said it was fear, but really fear went to a point where it became unbelief. And fear is saying, I'm afraid. But courage isn't the lack of fear. Courage is doing what God's calling you to do even when you are afraid. And amazingly, the Apostle Paul when he goes through the whole thing, the, um, the, uh, the spiritual armor, he gets to the end and he says, and pray for me that I might have boldness. Even the Apostle Paul was afraid. He was asking them to pray that he would have boldness. We think he was fearless. But the fact is, there were times the Apostle Paul was afraid. But courage is moving through that. Sometimes I think we give up too quickly in the face of fear. About ten years ago, I was in Vietnam. Uh, talking to uh, talk to some pastors there in Vietnam and they were saying and we had taken like uh, my family and I went and, and um, we had taken with us there were four of us we took in maybe a hundred Bibles with us and, and we delivered those Bibles um, uh, talking to some of the pastors they were saying you know we get tired of waiting for tourists to bring us fifty Bibles a hundred Bibles like we need thousands of Bibles and they were saying there are people coming to Christ out in the jungle villages there are churches being formed they don't, some of them don't even have a complete copy of the scriptures for the whole church. Some of them have just one Bible for the whole church. Some of them have two Bibles for the whole church. But saying those Christians are never going to mature in the faith without the Word of God. They need the Word of God in order to grow. So we need Bibles. We need thousands of Bibles. So he said, we have Bibles over in Thailand and we take some of our men, we take a straight truck over there, we load that truck up with Bibles, we put one row of cases of sugar or beans or something across the back, and we bring them into Vietnam because we just need Bibles on a much bigger scale than what the tourists are ever going to bring us. And they said a couple of years ago, one of our um, uh, trucks from the border between Cambodia and Vietnam, the customs agents uh, removed that row of whatever they had in the back and discovered that it was a truckload of Bibles. There were three men in the truck. Two of them got long-term prison sentences, like 20 years or more. And the man who was spearheading the whole thing with the truck, the third man in the truck was executed. And I was saying, wow, like, well, I guess that put a stop to that. And oh no. So we have lots more people who want to go. And we have lots of people who want to drive those trucks and bring Bibles over here. Saying, why? Like, but that, that guy got executed. And they said, oh that's just the price of doing God's work. And uh, I thought, you know, I never met anybody before who thought that execution is just part of God, doing God's work. I just, the price of doing God's work, that's, I mean, and then I get intimidated by somebody who might ridicule me or somebody that might laugh at me. Uh, sometimes we cave in too quickly to, um, to fear. And there are so many opportunities if we just put ourselves in God's hands to do God's work. Four years ago, I went with Raymond Brookholder to Burma, me and we went down to the Irrawaddy Delta uh, onto an island down there, ten villages on, on the island, a, a large island, the uh, whole thing's flat, about six feet above sea level. And um, uh, but it was quite a trip to get down there. We left, the, uh, and, and it was um, a, about two years after Cyclone Nargis went through there, just wiped out all the vegetation on the island and everything, and, and a lot of people died. The village that we were in before the cyclone, the population was 1,000. When we were there, the population was 250. was three-quarters of the people had died. And a lot of them died after the cyclone. Some of them were killed in the cyclone, but after the cyclone, the, the Burmese government wouldn't allow any aid agencies to go onto the island because they wanted people to die, and they did. Um, and more people died after because of lack of clean water and, and so on than, than in, in the storm itself. So three-quarters of the people had died. There were a lot of partial families in that, um, in that village. But to get there, they said, we're taking the overnight bus from Rangoon down to um, the town uh, in, in the Delta there, and then we go by there from there by boat out to the island. So they said, we'll take the overnight bus. It's about uh, eight hours on the bus. So we left at 6.30 in the evening. We got on the bus, and we counted like, the seats. If you put two people in each seat, there, were, there was room in that bus for 48 people. When they had the bus ready to go, there were 72 people in that bus. It was so full that at the one stop, the driver said, okay, he's ready to go, and all the people should get back on the bus. Everybody got in the bus. The driver climbed in the window on the driver's side because there were so many people between the front seats and the windshield <laughs> that he couldn't get in the door on the side to get in the driver's seat. And this bus, uh, it, it, every 45 minutes or so, they'd stop, and they'd get out a big pipe and a lug wrench, and they'd kind of jump on the, the lugs. I don't know what was going on with the wheels, but it was the road was rough. And then we got... Oh, three, four hours out of Rangoon. And then they said, now the road's not so good. The bus can't go. So we're going to have to take a truck. And so we sat beside the road and drank tea. And, and then the truck came. And there's a straight truck. They put all the luggage uh, up, on, uh, up on top of the, the canopy on the back of the truck. And then they put all the people in the, in the back. And, and some people up on top with the luggage. And Raymond and I, they put it in the front because we were the old guys. And so uh, then we went an hour in the truck and uh, then we got out of the truck and said okay now we'll get another bus so now it's like 3 o'clock in the morning and we're saying so how far is it from here and they said um it's another 6 hours and so <laughs> then uh, well, we're standing on the road and we see this light coming down the road, just kind of waving around. We said, what is that? Is it a bicycle? But the light was too high for that. And eventually, here this bus came out of the dark and it had no, no lights at all. And there was a guy hanging out the side with a big flashlight <laughs> shining on the road in front of the bus. He said, hey, we want that bus. But we didn't get that bus. But the bus we got on, I don't know what was wrong with it, but he couldn't hardly get it in gear. And when he wanted to back up, when he wanted to go into reverse... One of his helpers had to crawl all over the people, all the way back to the back of the bus, and he would open up the floor, and he'd reach down inside the floor and pull something, and then it would go in reverse. <laughs> and uh, So finally, about oh, 11 o'clock in the morning, we got down to the town where we were going to get the boat. So he said, all right, you guys can, can uh, uh, rest here a little bit. We'll get the boat up. Lunch, we'll get the boat. So he said, how long is the boat ride? The boat ride's four hours. So said, all right, so we, went to, we got lunch. We went down, we got in this boat. It's like a long tail boat, maybe... 25 feet long and, and it had a, a diesel engine on it and a, a, a prop that was on a long pole that they could put straight out the back or they could put it down and, and um, so when we sat down in the middle of this boat when we headed down the river and we going down there well the problem was when we got out to the ocean the wind was from the wrong direction and there were big big rolling waves they weren't breaking but we're in this little boat going up over these waves we're getting soaked it was hot so it was okay but but I and I kept one eye on the guy running the motor because I figured his, he looked pretty relaxed, and I figured as long as he's relaxed, I'm relaxed. So uh, and then the then the motor quit, and so there we are bobbing around on the ocean, and they're digging their tools out, and they finally got that thing fixed. And we took well. By the time we got to the village, it was it was um, it was about five o'clock in the evening. So we went to the deacon's house. We were staying there at the the deacon's house of the church there, and and uh, so we've been up since the morning before, right, and. Uh, So, they said, we might have church tonight. And so, after a while, Raymond said, "Uh, I'm going to bed. I said, Raymond, you know, they said they might have church. I'm going to wait a little bit. Sure enough, about 7 o'clock, they came and said, okay, we're ready to go to church. So, we walked over to the church, 7.30, they're getting ready to start church. Uh, So, they sang for a while, about quarter after 8, they came and said, okay, we want both of you guys to preach tonight. And and we said, how long? They said, "Uh, maybe an hour. And we said, okay, that's 30 minutes each. No, no, they said an hour each. And we said... But it's like 8.15 now. And and they said, what does that have to do with anything? So we preached for an hour, went home, went to bed. We were going to have a conference there, but the police had said we weren't allowed to have a conference because they had a law that you couldn't have more than five people together without police permission, uh, and the police wouldn't give permission. So they said, all right, well, what we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to do House services. And we'll just go around the village and we'll do services in people's houses and they can invite their neighbors and, and that's what we'll do. So the next morning, they gave Raymond one interpreter, they gave me another interpreter and we started out around the village. I got with my interpreter to the first house and they said, uh, and so we sang a few songs and then my interpreter said to me, now this guy here, he doesn't think you can trust God. He thinks if you put your faith in God, he's going to let you down. So here we need to preach about faith. So we sang one more song and I was preaching about faith. And then we went to the next house, and we're singing some songs. My interpreter said to me, now this guy here, he just became a Christian three months ago. And he has a really violent temper, and he used to beat his wife all the time. And now he got saved, and he knows he's not supposed to beat his wife, but he doesn't know what a Christian husband should do with his anger. So here you need to preach about the Christian family. So we sang one more song, and I'm preaching. So we did impromptu preaching all all day and, and covered the village. And, um, and, and then we went home, and, and, and we did that for a couple of days, so we were ready to go back and do the whole thing back through. And, and this island, everybody raised uh, seafood. They had shrimp ponds in their backyards, and they're right by the ocean, they're fishing. I love seafood. We had seafood all week long, and it was so good. It was so delicious, and I almost got sick from eating so much seafood. And the last day we were there, we went to the deacon's house, and she, the deacon's wife said, You know, we feel really bad because we've just been feeding you ordinary or everyday food all week long and, and we just feel really bad. So tonight we made a special meal for you. He said, Oh good. Like what are we having?" I said, "Well, we killed a dog and uh, we're going to have dog curry." And so we did. And she fried some up so we could taste it without being in the curry and stuff and and it, it didn't taste like chicken. I promise you it wasn't <laughs> chicken. And uh, but and it was okay. It was it was good. I couldn't think about a dog while I was eating it. But otherwise, it was all right. But during that time, there was a young man who came to the house where we were staying and he had been at the service where, where I talked about faith. And he said, you know, my family died in the storm. And I'm living with my Buddhist uncles. But I heard what you said about faith. And uh, we had a conversation there that led to him putting his faith in Christ. Now there is adventure that has significance for eternity. And I just think if our young people get a glimpse of the adventure that Christ has for us. In the real battle it's being fought. I just think that it gives a real thrill. And so, let's fight the good fight. Let's not fight pseudo-battles and fake battles and get all wound up about politics and all kinds of stuff. Those are fake battles. The real battle is with the the devil and with the powers of darkness. That's the real battle. So let's fight the good fight. What is worth fighting for? Well, it is for the hearts and souls of mankind. Secondly, the Apostle Paul says, I've finished my course. Getting to the end of life, we have to ask ourselves, have I done the important things? You know, amazingly, you look at Jesus' life, and he was very busy, but you never get the feeling that Jesus was rushed. Like, you never get the feeling that Jesus was, he and his disciples, like, they walked everywhere. And you never get the feeling that Jesus is saying to his disciples, Hey, could you guys kick up the pace a little bit here? Like, we've got, you know, we got to get over here to Capernaum, or we have to go to whatever... No, I mean, you don't get... And yet, Jesus was able, in in the busyness of his life, he was able to focus on individual people and give them his full attention. And and at the end of his life, he was able to make an amazing statement. He said to, to God the Father, I've done the things you've given me to do. There were still lots of blind people. There were still lots of lame people. There were still lots of people who had rejected him. And yet, Jesus was able to say to the Father, I have done the things that you've given me to do. One of the things we have to recognize is, Not every need is a call for me personally. God has things for me to do. But it's important that I discern what God is calling me to do. And there are some things in the world that God's going to call other people to do. And I see them, but it's not my call. And God is going to call someone else to do those things. But discerning, God, what do you want me to do? You see, the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appeared to him, he asked two very important questions the first question he asked was, Who are you, Lord? That's foundational. If we are going to know what God wants us to do, if we're going to know what Jesus wants us to do, we have to know who he is. And so our primary and first thing is to develop a kind of relationship with God where we know him well and that we know what he wants us to do. If you've been married long enough you kind of can anticipate what your spouse wants you to do now sometimes being men we have to ask uh, what do you want me to do but generally we can guess uh, we have a history and track record and we build that track record we kind of know what we ought to do uh, if you have an employer that you work for for a long time let's say you're at the sales counter and somebody comes in and they buy something and the next day they come back and they're really disgruntled they're really upset and they're you know demanding this and that and everything else and and you're dealing with them, and, and eventually they say, all right, I, I want to talk to your boss. You know what? You know what, you, you know what your boss does for disgruntled customers, right? And you've probably already offered them what you know he's going to do. And so if you've done that, you just kind of smile at that customer and say, go right ahead. Talk to my boss. Because you know he's going to do the same thing that you just, because you've learned to know him well enough that you can do what, what you know he would do. And you see, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to the point where we can anticipate what God would do in this situation, because we are his ambassadors. We are his representatives on earth. And so, as we build a history with Christ, we learn to know, how would God want me to respond in this situation? What would he want me to say? How would he want me to treat this person? And then we can do that. And, and, and we learn to know him well. Well, The transformed life, having having our mind renewed, our hearts transformed, is important. The second question that Paul asked Jesus was, what do you want me to do? Now, we often would like to have at least the 10-year plan, uh, preferably the 25-year plan. uh, What do you want me to do? And it's interesting, when the Apostle Paul asked Jesus, what do you want me to do, you would think that Jesus would say, alright, this is the Apostle Paul, right? And the Lord Jesus already knew everything he was going to do. You would think that Jesus would say to Paul, well, uh, buy some really good suitcases, get lots of quills, you've got a lot of writing to do, get, get a good ink supplier, because you've got to write Romans and 1 and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, maybe even Hebrews. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be busy. And uh, a lot of traveling and a lot of stuff going on. So your life is just kicking into high gear right now. And here's the, here it is. He didn't say any of that. You know, what he said to him, go into the city and there I'll show you what you're going to do. He was already planning to do that. He didn't get any new direction. In that moment, he goes to the city, spends three days there in blindness. Then God goes to Ananias, a more mature believer, and says, "Hey, over here on Straight Street, there's this guy named Saul, and uh, uh, I appeared to him, and, and and I want to show him all the things that he's going to do. and And you go over there." And, and Ananias says, uh, "Lord, uh, like I heard stuff about this guy. Are you sure you got the right guy?" And, and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah you just go over there." And Ananias went over there. God told Ananias more about what Saul's life was going to be like than he told Saul. Sometimes there are older believers in your life that God will use to show you direction for your life. And you may have, last week, been thinking, God, what do you want me to do? What do I do in the next five years? And God kind of says, go to Maranatha Bible School. Go to the minister's thing and... um, and there, I'll show you the. Next. And then you just get the next step, and then you go back home, and God gives you the next step, and you see that's called faith. When we walk with God, and Jesus says, "Follow me," that means He's ahead of us. He's already thinking about tomorrow. He's already thinking about next week. He knows what's out there, so He's preparing you and He's preparing the rest of the situation. God's never surprised Uh, we don't make a decision and then God goes like oh I had no clue he was going to do that now what am I going to do that just doesn't happen because God already knows what we're going to decide so he's prepared and and it's the walk of faith it's adventure it's it's the thrill of of the story of our lives being written day by day if, if, if we knew the next five years what was going to happen every day for the next five years and all we had to do was open a book and, okay, we can read about tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, what would be the point of waking up? There's, I mean, you already know what's going to happen. And so, but part of the adventure is waking up every morning and here I am, Lord. Like, what's, what are we doing today? And if you ever get to the place where you start waking up every morning and you feel like I got it covered, I can handle this. You're in a bad place. I don't think that's where God wants you to live. I don't think God ever intended us to get to the place where we feel like we're self-sufficient. I think God wants us to live on the edge of the impossible. Where we're aware of what God's called me to do is way too big for me. And if He's not doing it, it isn't going to happen. I don't have it under control. I don't have it in my power and ability to make this happen. It's going to be the Lord. And I'm going to watch what He's doing. And the terror of getting into situations when you don't know how it's going to turn out. And you're just sitting there saying, Okay, like now what? Uh, And God guides and God directs. And then we see it happen and it's like, Oh, that was amazing. And I got to watch it. That's, and I was even there maybe I even got to say a few words for the Lord like that's that's just amazing but running the race that God has for us taking the course that he has for us choosing to run race being intentional about life coming out decidedly on the side of Christ seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit setting objectives and goals for different stages of our life we're just working as, as um, just uh, two weeks ago as staff men we had a a time where we got together and we shared our goals for 2016 like what are our how do we want to grow spiritually and what do we want God what are we what are we looking to God for in 2016 and what do we want to accomplish with our families and our spouses and our children and we kind of went through the whole thing and just I'm really big on on, you got to be you got to be intentional about living life you have to be intentional about what your what your plans are and God can interrupt that at any moment and God can change things. I, I, I mean, it's all a walk of faith. But if we don't plan, we're not going to accomplish anything. We don't do that in our businesses or any other area of life. We don't just kind of sit back and say, "Well, whatever happens, happens." And I don't know, you know, we got this business here, and we'll just see what happens with it next year. And, and, no, we're thinking about how can we grow this, how can we improve it, what can, we, and what about our spiritual lives? You take your car in for a routine maintenance checkup to make sure everything's working. What about your spiritual life? Who do you talk to about what's going on in your life and kind of get a, 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 a just a, an oil change and a service on your spiritual life and say, "This is where I'm at," and and what do you see in my life? And and I just encourage, you, just like Brother Gilbert was saying, having somebody for him to have Terry like that's 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 that's, that's, that's amazing. That's we need those kind of men in our lives that we can honestly say it's not good right now and have somebody who can listen and pray with us and that's sometimes we dump too much of that on our spouses and and there's been times when my wife has said to me Merle go find some men like like I don't know what to say to you anymore Uh, you gotta go talk to some men and and so you know it's like our wives are helpers and, and all that but but they're not responsible to fix us Uh, They're not responsible to to, to straighten everything out in our lives. They're our best coaches. They're our best supporters. But we need men who will walk with us and, uh, and, and help us to be the men that we ought to be. So discipline yourself. Practice. Train. Listen to the coaches. But most of all, don't miss the main event. Run the race. Get engaged in what God is doing. And then finally, Paul says, I have kept the faith. I've talked about some of the Brother Ed talked to I really appreciated his talk on the doctrines worth dying for. But, what is keeping the faith? What does it look like? It's, the Bible says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It also says, If thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Just knowing who we are in Christ and knowing that we are solemnly on the side of the Lord Jesus. We are His sons and daughters. And that's our identity. And that we are living for Him. And we are engaged in what He's calling us to do. A life that is well lived, a life that keeps the faith, is a life that is grounded in truth. It's a life that knows where its center is. A life that keeps the faith that's well lived, is not a life that zigzags through life trying to accommodate the latest fads or the current trends. Because the truth of the matter is there's not some exotic, undiscovered truth somewhere that if you just knew that, that everything would fall into place and all your problems would be solved. It's the basic elements of the gospel message which is very, very simple. And I think Brother Ed read it out of Corinthians there, kind of the gospel in a nutshell. The Lord Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. That is the essence of the gospel message and that is what transforms lives. And coming back over and over again to the basics is what will keep us to have a steady course through life where we're not wavering, but we're pursuing a goal. A life that's lived out in faithful service daily in spite of the obstacles. Where we focus on faithfulness on a daily basis. I would suggest to you that many of the men and women that we look to as heroes of the faith did not set out to be a hero of the faith. They set out to be faithful servants of Christ. And in the pursuit of faithfulness, they became men and women of greatness my encouragement to you is not to pursue greatness but to pursue faithfulness greatness doesn't matter faithfulness matters a lot and uh, we are in desperate need of more men and women who finish well and who live in faithfulness and are able to get to the end of their lives and say I have fought the good fight I have finished the course And I've kept the faith. We don't need more people grandstanding. We don't need more people doing other things. We just need men and women who will pursue faithfulness and allow God to work through their lives. Staying the course means to maintain our focus on the word of God, on scripture that is unchanging, that's steadfast. We can count on the basic tenets of our faith staying the same throughout the decades and throughout the centuries. The basic tenets of our faith remain unchanged in the midst of a changing world. And the more the world changes, the more it highlights the consistency of the gospel message. There are absolute truths by which we formulate the plan of our lives. You see, if you... It's so important that we have a fixed point, that we have absolute truth, that this is what I can really, really believe in, and this is true. If you would put me in this room, and you would block out all the light so that it was completely pitch dark in here, and you would remove all the furniture and you would say, okay, find your way out of this room. It would be a challenge. Because I wouldn't really have much of a sense of which way I'm walking, right? If I could walk in one direction, I'd hit the wall, but where did I come from exactly? And <coughs> but if you would give me this table and say, you do the same thing, but you'd give me this table and it would stay fixed right here. I'd have a much better chance of finding my way out of the room because I could walk from here. I could hit that wall. I could take a couple steps. I could find the table. I could walk that way. I could hit the wall. I could come back. I could find the table. And by figuring out which side of the table I'm walking off of, eventually, I could find the door because I had a fixed reference point to come back to. But if you remove that fixed reference point and I'm always starting from a different place, it's just a whole different picture having absolute truth is very, very important. And that comes back to the person of Jesus Christ who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I was alive and I died, but now I'm alive again forevermore. He is the one that is our center. He's the one that we come back to he started it. He was here before it all started. And he's going to be here after it's all finished. Uh, and he will be the same as he was. Sometimes we get troubled and worried about the church and we kind of wonder, is it going to survive? And, and you know, Things are getting worse and worse and the world's getting to be a worse and worse place. I'm a little relaxed about that because um, when I read a novel... I like to read the first chapter or two and kind of get the setting and the main characters and then I read the last chapter because then I know how it turns out. I know who marries who. I know uh, how it ends. So, I can be reading the book and it can be 11 o'clock at night. The hero can be tied up on the railroad track. The train whistle can be blowing and the train's coming. I get to the end of the chapter. I can just lay it down and go to sleep because... I'm not worried about him because I already read the last chapter and he was still alive. So I don't know how he gets off the railroad track, but I know he does. Now, the book doesn't lose its adventure because I don't know how he gets off the railroad track. That's going to be amazing. So I still, you know, the story unfolds as I go along, but I'm never in a panic because I already know how it ends. Well, God's already given us the story of humanity, He told us how it started. And he tells us how it's going to end. And we already know that in the end, there is a faithful church. And we know that there are those who are faithful to the end. So I'm not in a panic about whether the church, the faithful church is going to survive. My question is, will I be faithful? Will I be be part of that faithful church? That's the only question I have. God is faithful. God is able. I'm a human being but I'm not in panic about the future. As we go from here, we can go with the confidence. God has a plan. He is able. There will be a faithful church in the end. And we want to be faithful shepherds in shepherding that church and bringing it to the conclusion that God has written down of what will happen. Some of us are getting kind of close to our best-if-used before date, and we're going to turn that over, as Tim was saying, to somebody else. But even we can do that in faith. Knowing that it's not about us. I'm not somehow the protector of God's flock. I just am a caretaker for this time. I'm a shepherd for now. God will bring in other men who will carry it faithfully to the end. And I can relax and just trust Him and walk with Him. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our focus is on following and on faithfulness and the rest is in the hands of God. And I'd just like to pray for you as we close here. God, I pray that you would bless us. Lord, we are so blessed to be shepherds over your flock. Lord, you have given us an amazing privilege to be pastors and leaders. You know sometimes there's challenges and you know how sometimes we despair and we get discouraged. Lord, we've had a couple of really good days here together, and I just thank you for these men, their wives. Lord, I just pray that you would bless each of us as we go from this place. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to be true to the Word of God. Help us to be men who lead uh, in ways that are relational, in ways that are caring, in ways that are loving, and yet in ways that are very stable, very solid, very predictable. Help us not to waver and be pulled to one way or another by the current trends and fashions and fads even in the spiritual and the religious world. Lord, we want to be faithful men and women. God, I pray that you would bless us as we go from here. We pray that the churches that we represent here would be part of that faithful church at the end of time. That would be uh, part of the church that uh, pleases you and blesses you in a world that becomes increasingly more difficult, more violent, and more dysfunctional. In Jesus' name, amen.